Please take your Bibles and turn with me, first of all, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Last week, Pastor Devon preached in Revelation chapter 5, as I was not in the pulpit. And so I want to pick up again where we've been in my exposition of Philippians and kind of bring us back up to speed as to where we are. Some of you may be visiting, and I also want to bring us where we are and why I'm preaching on the particular passage I am today. So, a few weeks ago, we came to Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13, and the subject of contentment. Hear these words, Philippians 4, verse 10, the Apostle Paul wrote, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I preached two sermons on this passage in which we considered five points. First, we saw a definition of contentment. And simply put, contentment means to be satisfied, and Christian contentment is being satisfied with what God has provided for you what he is providentially doing in your life and where he has you circumstantially. We're content. We're acknowledging two foundational things. So we said, secondly, that there's a foundation to contentment. Having defined it, we saw the foundation to contentment is the providence and goodness of God. We have to understand certain truths about God if we are to live as contented Christians. That He is sovereign, and we rest in His providence, and He is good, and we rest in His goodness. And when we live in light of those two things, we have the foundation for contentment. Then we saw the comprehensiveness of contentment. That when we are content and cultivate Christian contentment, then it aids in sanctification in other areas of our lives. That even as discontentment has many sinful companions, sins that are born out of discontentment, like greed and covetousness and bitterness and complaining and anger and even sins like murder and adultery and divorce because of discontentment, even so contentment has companions. It bears fruit in regard to possessions and money and material things. We don't love it. We use it as stewards to God's glory. It bears fruit of thankfulness. The tongue is affected when we're content. We're thankful about relationships and relationships are affected. Good gifts from God like marriage are affected. There's contentment in the covenant of marriage, and therefore it bears the fruit of faithfulness in marriage. And so we saw how contentment was comprehensive. It affects the whole soul, even as discontentment affects the whole soul. Contentment, when cultivated, affects the whole life and soul of the believer. And so then we considered from these verses in Philippians the school of contentment. And I use that phrase because it's something we have to learn. We have to go to school, so to speak, to learn contentment. And God has us in this school of contentment. He is at work to cultivate godly contentment in us. And so we talked about what that looks like. And then finally in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, we saw the source or the secret of contentment. Paul says, here's the secret to it all. I can do all things, every circumstance that I find myself in, whatever the extremes are, being filled or being hungry, having want or having much, I can do all things through Him. That's the source who gives me strength. And then I wasn't ready to leave 
this subject of contentment and move on to verse 14 and the rest of the book of Philippians. So we considered last week, or not last week, two weeks ago, Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. Flip over to Hebrews 13 for me. Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. Before moving on to Philippians 4 verse 14 and the verses that follow, I believe that we needed to consider this matter of contentment and money more fully, especially if we're going to understand what is to follow in Philippians 4. Paul talks about this matter of giving and receiving. This money of use, this matter of using our money and sharing it with those in need, supporting those in gospel ministry, if we're not content with what God has given to us, and if we're not stewards of it, if we're clinging tightly to our money because we love it, then we're not going to be able to do what the Philippian church did. And that was share with the Apostle Paul who had need and use their money as good stewards of what God had provided. So I went to Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, which says this, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so you remember we followed four points to go through this passage. We saw first a dangerous sin mentioned in verse 5. And the sin is this, the love of money. The love of money. And he says your character is to be without something. It is to be free from this dangerous sin, the love of money that will lead you astray. And how do you guard from the love of money? Well, he speaks of a protective virtue. That is being content. Being content with what you have. What you have is sufficient. God has providentially provided you what you have, and we should be satisfied with that. And when we cultivate contentment with what God has providentially given to us and use it for His glory, then it will guard us from that dangerous sin of the love of money. And then we saw a comforting promise in the words, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In any and every circumstance, this is parallel to Philippians, in humble means and prosperity, God himself is with us. He will never leave us, never forsake us. So even if they're humble means materially, God has not deserted or forsaken you. Fix your hope on God. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. And believing and living in light of these things leads to the fourth point that we looked at in Hebrews 13, which was a confident confession. In verse 6, we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? When our lack of material possessions is because of the persecution of the world, which is what these Hebrew Christians were facing. It's what the Apostle Paul was facing in Philippians 4. Then we can confidently and boldly say, when we have this protective virtue of contentment, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Again, they can take my possessions, they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. And so with this, we shall be content. Again, before we go back to Philippians 4, and in particular, begin to look at verse 14 and the rest of the chapter, I desire to preach a part two, you might say, on contentment and money by having us now turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I say all this in order to prepare you for next week, because we're not going to be able to understand this matter of what Paul calls in verse 15 of Philippians 4, giving and receiving. Using our money for the various purposes God has designed it to be used. One of it is to support gospel ministry. If our hands are clinging to our money and we're fearful of money because we're or losing it because we're trusting in it. So all this is what Pastor Ernest has been talking about 
in regard to Owen when he's teaching on the mortification or putting sin to death, the mortification of the flesh. This is spade work that I believe will help us in preparing the soil for really understanding some principles when we go back to Philippians 4, beginning in verse 14. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The Apostle Paul here in this letter to Timothy addresses the subject of contentment in relationship to money and possessions. We see that in verse 8 when he says, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And this is the chapter that contains the well-known verse, verse 10, which says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And we'll focus our attention on verses 6 to 10 and then verses 17 to 19. But in order to understand why Paul addresses this subject of contentment here in 1 Timothy, why he addresses money and the love of money, we need to go back to verse 3. 1 Timothy 6 verse 3. In verses 3 through 5, Paul describes certain false teachers that were affecting the church. Here's what he says, 1 Timothy 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, so it's just not orthodoxy, but orthopraxy, not just what you believe, but what you live, He says, if anyone advocates something contrary to that, that's heterodoxy, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth, And notice this phrase, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So in the context here, Paul is addressing false teachers who are proud. He calls them conceited. They're really not about proclaiming Christ. They're really about their name, not Christ's name. He says they're ignorant. They understand nothing. They claim to be teachers of the law of God, but they don't understand those things that they make confident assertions about 1 Timothy 1.7. They're obsessed, in verse 4, they have these morbid interests. They're obsessed with controversial questions, disputes about words, things that don't matter rather than sound words and sound doctrine. He says in verse 5, they're men of depraved mind, deprived of the truth. They don't know the truth, they don't teach the truth, and they take people to hell with them by their false doctrine. But then he says they're motivated by greed. And this is what gets Paul on the subject of money and contentment. Verse 5, he says, Of these false teachers who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they were in it for the money. And this is a characteristic of false teachers. 2 Peter 2 verse 3 says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. 2 Peter 2 verse 14, it says of these false teachers, Having a heart trained in greed. The gospel is never to be used for personal gain, and yet riches and money is at the heart of what motivated these false teachers. The dollar drives the false teacher. You've seen it on TV. You've maybe been to those churches. The dollar is what drives the false teacher. The greed and covetousness of false teachers leads Paul to give instruction to Timothy and the church at Ephesus where Timothy was serving. And so using a play on words in verse 6, he says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Now what he means by this is the false teachers were thinking that godliness was a means of monetary gain. And not true godliness, they were using quote-unquote religion and godliness as a means to pad their pockets in their bank accounts. 
There was no true godliness. These false teachers were in it for material gain. So Paul says that true godliness, which is what he's referring to in verse 6, true godliness actually is a means of great gain. Not material gain, but now he's beginning to speak of spiritual gain when it's accompanied by contentment. So true godliness, as defined by Scripture, plus accompanied by contentment, actually will lead to great gain. Not monetary, but it will profit you, so to speak, spiritually. When godliness and contentment go hand in hand, and there will be great spiritual gain in the life of the believer. And Paul, so what Paul's doing is now exposing these false teachers and instructing Timothy and other believers by saying, this is true gain, not monetary gain that will one day perish, that is uncertain. But what you should be focused on is true godliness and being content with what you have, not loving money. And then there'll be great gain for your soul. Your soul will flourish no matter what your bank account does. So then in verses 7 through 10, the Apostle Paul gives three basic truths which will guard us from greed, will guard us from the love of money, and will aid us in being content. Here are the three basic truths. You can't take material things with you when you die. Secondly, materially, all you really need is food and covering. And then thirdly, loving material things will destroy you. There are just three basic truths. Look at the first one. You can't take material things with you when you die. Verse 7, for you have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Now in the Greek in which this was written, the word order matters. And the Apostle Paul is emphasizing it by the word order. And Greek does this. The language is such that where you place certain words emphasizes certain things. And so quite literally, it would say this. Nothing we have brought into the world, so nothing we have the ability to take out of it. And the word nothing is placed first in the verse and first in each clause to emphasize nothing you brought into the world, nothing you'll take out of it. In other words, you'll leave this world as you entered it. I've seen all of our children born. The first one, with a little more amazement and excitement, and with each one after that, a little more dizziness and queasiness. <laughs> but I've seen all of them born. And one thing was common with all of them. They came into the world with nothing. Absolutely nothing. They didn't have anything in their hands. They were naked. None of my children came into the world with material possessions. And all babies are born without any material possessions at all. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. At death, we must leave everything we've accumulated. You cannot take it with you. And part of what this means is that material possessions will be of no value after you die. No matter how valuable it may be now, and how you may assess value to it, and how much people may say it's valuable to them, it will be of no value to you when you die. You will not bring it before the throne of God. Proverbs 11 verse 4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You've probably seen the bumper stickers which say, He who dies with the most toys wins. What a lie from the pit of hell. How contrary to the undeniable truth that we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. It's my understanding that Egyptian pharaohs would be buried with treasures because they thought they would have access to those treasures in the afterlife. But how sad. Those possessions stay here while they appear before 
the throne of God. Proverbs 27 verse 24 says, Riches are not forever. So why live for things that are temporary? Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Riches are fleeting. Riches are unreliable. Proverbs 18 verse 11 calls riches like a high wall of one's own imagination. We somehow set up in our minds fortresses around ourselves made of money and material possessions as if they can protect us from various dangers. And ultimately they cannot. Why trust in that which will perish? Most of us will outlive the material possessions we have. Your car will rust. It will break down. You'll probably need a new one before you die. By the way, if you say, I might not need a new one before I die, then you need to prepare most certainly for death. We all, none of us know the day of our death. But, you know, it, my father-in-law, he's 84, 5, or 6, somewhere in that range, and they bought a, a, a new car not too many years back, and he's made the statement, this is probably the last car I will purchase. And that's a sobering thought. And none of us know when that day of death will be. It may be today. But we do know that there's only a certain number of years that our bodies can live. They're decaying and they're dying. So if you can't say, if you say, well, I probably won't buy another car, then that should sober us up, right? The day in which I will be before God is very soon. All this just teaches us that life is not about material possessions. So you can't take material things with you when you die. That should put it in perspective. A second truth that will guard our hearts is this. Materially, all I need in this life, all I need, we talked about the word need in a previous sermon. All I really need in this life is food and covering. That's in verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Food, covering. That's all we should really need to be content. And that should be convicting already because I don't think that's necessarily how we think of it. We think we have to have more than just that, food and covering. Food referring to physical sustenance to sustain our lives. This is why we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. Just give me today what I need. And then covering refers to clothing and adequate shelter from the elements. Because without adequate shelter from the elements, then our lives are in danger. And Paul is saying this is all you need to live. But I want more. I'm not happy with the current clothing and shelter that I have. Part of the secret of contentment, as we've already talked about, is understanding what our real needs are. And if God provides them, we should praise Him for that and not be discontent because it's not the kind of clothing or shelter or food that we want. Someone has said that while you live here on earth, learn to live with little. And what you do have, don't love it. So it's a basic principle. All I really need in this life is food and covering. Paul says, with this we shall be content. And Paul wasn't speaking about theory. It was often that he didn't even have adequate food and covering. Times in which, again, he was in need and dependent upon others to meet that need or asking Timothy on another occasion to, to bring when he came to see him his cloak. He, he needed more warmth in the prison cell. He understood what it meant to just have food and covering. 
and being content with that. But the third principle is this. Loving material things will destroy you. That's in verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So here we see the danger of wanting to get rich. Here we see this lust for riches. This inordinate desire, I want to get rich. I want riches. How do I get it? How do I gain it? There are so many other things that are worthy of us wanting. The glory of God. That's what Christians should desire above all else. God be glorified. Hallowed be your name. The salvation of souls. That's a good and holy desire to want that. Oh God, save my children. Would you be merciful to them? Would you be merciful to these who don't know Christ? We should want the gospel to go forth in power. So many things that we should want. But this one thing can begin to compete for those holy desires, this desire, this wanting to get rich. We just sang, riches I heed not. But many heed it. They bow down to it. And Paul says those who want to, they have this desire, this is their goal. I want to get rich. He says they fall into temptation and a snare. Fall into, the word here implies in the Greek a sudden fall. It's it's the idea that they're going along, pursuing after something, and then a sudden fall happens. You might not think the love of money, the love of riches is affecting you, but then suddenly you fall. And then he says... And you fall into temptation, the lust to get rich, the desire to get rich will then plunge you. Notice the language he's using, it will plunge you into all kinds of temptations, all kinds of other inordinate desires. The love of money, again, will spawn all kinds of other sins. Relationships will be affected. You see people as dollar signs. They become a means to an end. This relationship is that I might gain wealth. How can I use them to get rich? I remember when I was in seminary, and I I don't remember how I met this person. I think it was through another believer that said, hey, I have a friend. But I was in seminary, and he said, hey, I want to meet with you. I want to share some things with you that would basically be life-changing. So um, I don't think you were there but we lived in the apartment, and so I thought, okay, I'll let this man come over. So he came into our apartment complex pulling a boat. And what he wanted to meet with me about is a pyramid scheme, a network marketing scheme that would make me rich. And he was a former pastor, and he said, here's what I learned. I learned I can do a lot more for the gospel through this network marketing scheme than I could as a pastor. And he was trying to convince me, basically, you don't need seminary. I mean, you're going to be limited in preaching the gospel, but through this business, I meet all kinds of people and I can share the gospel. What he was about was money. And he wanted to show me his boat. He fell into a temptation, a snare. And I was nothing more than another dollar sign to him. Let me get him in my network scheme. Some of you have been in that. I, for a short period of time, years ago, was trying to figure out how am I going to make money, but it wasn't through that particular scheme, but it was like, oh, here's some security products. I think I can sell these. So I tried door-to-door, remember that, and that fell flat. But it was a network marketing scheme in the end, and so you do. You start seeing people. How can I get them signed up? You see, you fall into a temptation of all kinds, and one of them is our relationships are affected. And Paul says you may not think your love of money and riches is affecting you, but suddenly you fall, and he says you'll fall into a snare. It's a word used of a trap set for an animal. The desire to get rich will suddenly ensnare you like an animal falling for a lure in a trap, and it will lead to death. He says you'll fall into many foolish and harmful desires. 
And in the end, you'll be plunged into ruin and destruction. Paul's just extreme, isn't he? A little too passionate. A little too zealous. <laughs> no, Paul's speaking the truth because he loves Timothy and he wants Timothy to tell this truth to the church at Ephesus where he was. Beware and watch out. You've got these false teachers among you. They're using godliness, so to speak, not real godliness as a means of gain. You need to beware of that or you're going to be following along after them to destruction and ruin. And he's trying to snatch their souls away from this. He's saying this is like poison that will kill you. And the ultimate end of this desire, this wanting to get rich, is apostasy. He says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. He says, some have actually forsaken Christ and all the riches of His grace because they love money. Maybe you know someone who has wandered away from the faith because of the love of money. Paul knew someone who had. He'll write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas didn't just desert Paul, but he deserted gospel ministry and Christ himself for the love of the world. So again, do you see how important it is to guard your heart, to have godly affections and godly longings? The picture here in verse 10 is of a person who has wandered from the Savior and he's ended up speared through the heart pierced through the heart by the deceitfulness of riches. You say, and all this danger comes from money? I mean, here's a a $20 bill. Here's a wicked, evil, vile $20 bill. As money is the root of all evil, Right? Wrong. There is nothing evil about this bill. This piece of paper can't plunge you into ruin. It's the love of it. When you begin to want it, and some of you kids might be saying, I wouldn't mind having that, right? But we begin to see dollar signs and that's what our desire is. And now we bow down to money. And Paul is saying, guard your heart. It's not the money itself. It's the love of money. The problem isn't this piece of paper. The problem is right here in the heart. So Paul says, guard your heart. Guard your heart from sinful and foolish loves. Don't be impoverished by the love of money. Be content with what you have. So you can't take material things with you when you die. All you really need to be content should be food and covering. And the love of material things will destroy you. Now, look at verses 17 to 19. Before Paul puts down the the pen, he reiterates what he's just said, but more directly to certain people. Not just piggybacking on false teachers and the danger of their greed spreading, but now he says in verse 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Boy, that is just packed full of truth. 
Here he reminds, again, Timothy, and he tells him to remind a particular group in the church of the danger of riches. He says, Timothy, I want you to instruct them about something. Here we have the danger, again, of fixing one's hope on riches. And he tells them, I want you to instruct a certain category of people in your church, those who are rich. Now, there are Christians who are rich. And this is somewhat relative. In one sense, I think we could say that includes all of us today. In this church right now, we're all rich. We don't have any need. We're not just saying, where am I going to get my food and shelter? We have that and more. There's an abundance. So this really is us. And he's not saying, because you're rich, you've sinned. No, that's not the point. He's just stating the fact there are Christians who are rich. And it's not sin to be rich. We just saw Pastor Sean teaching in Sunday school regarding Job, who was a righteous man. And he had many possessions. He had much wealth. A righteous man would much wealth. If a person is rich from honest, diligent labor, if a person inherits riches or however he's gained it through honest means, it's not sin to have riches. But judgment is pronounced on those who gain wealth dishonestly and corruptly. Proverbs 10 verse 2, ill-gotten gains do not profit. There are ill-gotten gains. Psalm 119 verse 36 speaks of those who gain dishonestly. And there were some evidently in the church who needed to be careful because they were rich and they were hoping in their riches, trusting in their riches. Some may have even acquired it through ungodly means. James addresses that in James chapter 5 when he says, Come now, you who are rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Wow, again, pretty strong language, isn't it? He says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Why is James being so strong writing to the church? Because then he says, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which you have which." has been withheld by you, cries out against you. So they were withholding wages. They had even treated the poor with contempt. So that's a real danger. We have to be careful of that. But if our wealth has been gained through honest means, it's not a sin to have material wealth. But those who are rich need instruction. And so that's what we see here. Paul tells Timothy, instruct, charge, command those who are rich. And here's what you're to warn them of. They're not to be conceited. And they're not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So I think we all need to hear this, don't we? Don't be conceited. Here's a danger to be proud and arrogant. Why is it such a temptation for us to be proud and arrogant? So I'm not proud about my riches. Sometimes this is more subtle than we think. We've been conformed to the world. We get in our new car and we drive around in a very proud way. Look at my car. No one may even see it. We just get in it and we find satisfaction in the car. I mean, all the commercials that we see that basically your value and your life is tied to what you're driving around in. And there's one commercial, again, I I don't remember all the commercials, but basically you find peace in it. It's got Serena Williams sitting in the car to get some peace. Like, a car can bring you peace. But one of the dangers is because we have riches, we can be proud and arrogant. We can be conceited. And one of the ways that happens is that we might begin to forget that the One who's really provided it is God himself. We might begin to think that we came to our wealth by our own resources, our own ingenuity, our own intellect, 
or even our own hard work. Isn't that American? Work hard, you'll be rewarded. That's the pride of American life, isn't it? That's foolish. For God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who gives the intellect. God is the one who gives you the ability to do those things. And God could take it in a moment. So I've labored, physical labor. That's because God's given you health. You know, I've, I've been very resourceful in my thinking and creating programs and, and doing these things. No, God gave you the ability to think. And the danger is that we can become conceited and forget it's God who has given us all things. Your health, your mental abilities, whatever it may be. The Israelites were warned of not forgetting God in Deuteronomy 8, 17. He says, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and strength, the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And they had to be warned, no, it's God who has given you these things. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? He was looking at all that he had in his kingdom and how great Babylon was. And he says, which I myself have built by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty. And Maybe we're not so bold, but we have to be on guard not to be conceited and think that anything we have is because of our might, our ability. That's because of God who gives us those things. So wealth can make us forget God and be conceited. So he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't hope in riches. Don't rely upon that which is uncertain. The word uncertainty here means insecurity. Riches are not secure. In the financial world, stocks and bonds are called securities. Now, that's ironic. I don't know the history of that. There may be a reason why it's called a security, and maybe someone who's in that field can tell us why and something of the etymology of the word in the financial world. Uh, Maybe it's because you secure them somehow, and now you have a part and a place and ownership of that company in some way. I don't know, but nonetheless, it's ironic that stocks would be called, as volatile as they are, securities. For it's one of the most insecure things. And that's the way it is with all riches. You might lose your health and you lose it all. And Paul says here, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to do these things. Literally, the now age, the present age. And that's contrasted with what Paul is doing in such an economy of words is reminding them, you may be rich in the things that are now, but you need to be rich in the things that are eternal. Stop trusting in riches. Don't be conceited, but trust in God. So don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. On God. He should be our trust. Because he's the one who supplies our needs ultimately. And notice how he describes God. But on God who richly, richly, he's using those words on purpose. He richly supplies. What a good God that he would richly supply us. Meet our material needs. He needs to be my focus. And he says here, he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. See, when we have fixed our hope on God, not the riches, then we can really enjoy them. We can enjoy what God has given because they're being used to the glory of God rather than to serve us. We can then enjoy them because they're not our idol and our God and we're not their slave. For we've learned to live with riches and without riches. 
So we can really enjoy what God has provided when we don't hope in it. But our hope is fixed on God. Another way of saying it is this. Don't fix your hope on the gift, but on the giver of the gift. When God richly supplies and provides for you, don't love the thing He's provided. Love the God who's provided it. Now you guard your soul from this danger of being conceited. This danger of fixing your hope on that which is uncertain. Then he goes on in verse 18 and says, Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So do good, be rich in good works, be generous, be ready to share. These are not just general commands. This is in the context of material wealth. And Paul is saying to Timothy that he is to instruct those who are rich to use their wealth for the good of others. Now you're not fixing your hope on it. When you fix your hope on it, you set it up and you bow down to it or you cling to it and you're not willing to depart from it. And he's saying, no, when you fix your hope on God and you use material wealth, To the glory of God, now you use it to do good and you're generous and you're willing to depart from it and to use it for the good of others. So while money can be a temptation to evil, it is to be used to do good. And he says, be rich. They're to be rich in good works using their wealth to help others. They're to be generous and ready to share. The word generous means bountiful. Be liberal with it. There's the good use of the word. (laughs) When it comes to your wealth, when you're not clinging to it as your God, loving it, fearful of losing it, now you'll be liberal in giving it away. You'll be, he says here, ready to share. Ready to share. In the words of Romans 12, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. Galatians 6, verse 10, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially those who are in the household of faith. What he is talking about in that context isn't just doing good generally, but materially, helping others who have need. And so we'll see, this is again the the setup, so to speak, to help us prepare for seeing what the church at Philippi did and why and the biblical principles behind it when they then were willing to share with the Apostle Paul to give to him and his need rather than cling to it. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 19. Storing up for yourselves treasure, the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You instruct those who are rich in this way so that now they'll be storing up not treasures on earth where, wrath, where moth and rust destroys, but instead you're storing up for yourself the treasure of a good foundation for the future. You're using it for eternal things. And so Paul's using this language of storing up things. You're not hoarding material things that are going to ultimately go away that you can't take with you, but now you're using it to propagate the gospel, to meet the needs of people. And he says, when you do that, you take hold of that which is life indeed. People who are rich talk about living the good life. They're really not living the good life. The Bible says, no, it's what a person does with that wealth that matters. And Paul is saying, if you use your wealth to the glory of God, the good of others, the propagation of the gospel through the church... That is taking hold of life indeed. So all this is the the foundation. These are truths that, that how Paul, going back in our minds to Philippians, could say, I have food and covering. And there are those who have shared, and he will say, I'm fully supplied. I'm amply supplied. Having received your gift, we'll see next week, I, I have no more need. Thank you. 
And then he begins to talk about how them using their wealth and their, their possessions to help him in time of need. My God shall supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. It's a fragrant aroma to God. It's worship to God. And this is how we have to see material possessions if we're to be, con- be content with what we have. So if we understand and apply these things, now we're ready to understand next week, Philippians 4, verses 14 to 19, the sharing that the Philippians exercised with Paul in his need and this matter of giving and receiving. Now we're ready to understand what Paul will say about the generosity of the Philippian church when he says, I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord, and my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we confess that our hearts are idol factories. We manufacture in our sinfulness, idols to bow down to, to fix our hope on, to love, to trust, to adore. But I thank you that you are God and there is no other. And that you have declared that you are to have no other gods before me. I am alone, God, to be worshipped, to be hoped in, trusted in, to be adored, to be worshipped. Father, I pray that, Lord, in this affluent culture that we live in, in which, Lord, we're constantly tempted in our own hearts and in the world around us to think we have to have more. Lord, I pray that we would be instead transformed in the renewing of our minds by Scripture. Help us to be content with food and covering. And whatever you provide for us, may we give glory to you, for ultimately it's from your hand. And may it be used for your glory as good stewards of what you have richly supplied. And in these things, we'll be careful to give you praise and honor and glory. Through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together for our benediction. As we dismiss, I share with you from Psalm 62. It says this, Do not trust in oppression. Do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and loving kindness is yours, O Lord. For you recompense a man according to his work. Amen.